you know, coming from an immigrant family and getting here so much of your um, drive is wanting to succeed. So you want to do well in school. You want to do all the things you're supposed to do and check the boxes and get A's. And I, you know, frankly, I did do that. <laughs> this is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blum, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce herself. Nadira, please go ahead. Hello, Maurice. Thank you for having me. Um, so I like to say that I'm a writer at heart mm-hmm. <laughs> because that is that is the um, capital W work uh, that I love and that I hope to be doing for, for life. But it's had lots of different permutations over the course of my life and my careers. It's meant being a journalist at places like Fortune and Newsweek. It's also meant hosting um, what I like to think of as social good events as a moderator and as an MC at places like the UN. Uh, it's it's really encompassed just uh, things I could never have imagined um, could be part of a career in the life. <laughs> um, but it's it's been a, a wonderful experience. Um, so that's sort of my professional background. I'm also a new mom, so I have mm-hmm. a soon to yeah, be six month old. Yeah, <laughs> Thank wonderful. you. Um, a beautiful name. A, yeah. <laughs> yes, my daughter's name is Dia. Having a new little one is a wonderful addition to my family and to my life. But it also presents sort of um, I wouldn't say a challenge, but new adventures, and that they, mm-hmm. figuring out how to not just incorporate her into my work. Um, but also to like be worthy of her, which is something I didn't expect <laughs> to mm. feel so strongly um, as a parent. So it, I, I'm more motivated than I've ever been um, in my in my work and in the things that you know I care about, uh, which is wonderful. Um, and then in terms of my background, I'm a, a Brooklynite. <laughs> I'm in Brooklyn. I'm in New York. Um, and I love it here. I think uh, for a lot of people, New York is sort of a stopover. You come for two or three years after school and then you're gone um, mm-hmm. and you've had your infusion. I've stayed for 20 years now. So I think yeah. I think this is really home. Um, but I also come from um, Connecticut, which I, I claim and is dear to my heart. And uh, my family's Caribbean in origin. So mm-hmm. um, that is a huge part of my identity as well. So when you ask, you know, who am I? It could go in all sorts of different directions. Yeah. But those are the things that come to mind. But you, so we were born in the US, right? No, actually, I was born in the Bahamas. Oh, you were? Born in okay. the Bahamas. My dad was, doing, yeah. yeah. My dad was doing his medical residency mm-hmm. um, there, and my but my family is originally from are from Guyana. Both my parents were okay. born in Guyana and right. were there, um, and then they went to the Bahamas or to Jamaica actually first for my father to go to medical school, and then they were in the Bahamas for residency, which is where I was born. Um, and my mom jokes that back then it was not what people think of now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she says yeah. we were in the bush. <laughs> Um, and she's from a big family but she was there by herself with a new baby and you know I think um, I know that that had challenges but it also meant that she and I were very close very early Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think we're still like that still partners in crime and then um, my family moved back to Guyana my sister was born there and then my um, father passed away my mother came to the U.S. and my brother's from um, her next marriage to our stepfather 
that's okay. It, okay. it happens. Um, uh, we're born here. So I'm, I'm the oldest of four kids and we all have sort of different um, experiences and uh, of course, and uh, also different passions. So it's actually, that's a huge part of my identity too, is being one of four and kind of seeing how all of us have evolved is, um, is also magical. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> and so how old were you when, when you uh, went to the States? Uh, six, six years old. Okay. So um, it was 1986. And then basically just at the start of, of real school. So mm -hmm. that's why I say, I, you know, I really grew up in Connecticut because that's what I remember. And that's when I um, started elementary school and really kind of learned, you know, who I am mm -hmm. <laughs> or started to learn, I guess. Um, but I, I am old enough to remember being in, you know, being in Guyana and, and, and sort of the journey here as well. Yeah. So that's a dramatic trajectory in and of itself. My brothers were, you know, really born in the US and they are American kids in every mm -hmm. <laughs> respect. Yeah. Some of this is like, it's real adventuring when we talk about it. Um, but, but for me, it's just, it's life. Okay. And do you speak also, uh, so, you know, a couple of languages as a result of uh, the travels or you were too uh, small? No. Yeah. So Guyana actually is the only English speaking country in South America. So mm -hmm. as a British colony, a former British colony, um, the whole population more or less um, speaks English. Um, there are obviously indigenous languages and it has a very mixed history. So you have mm -hmm. Portuguese, Chinese, um, Spanish, British, all sorts of things um, in its background and in the background of the neighboring nations, of course. But um, I grew up speaking English. My mom went to, you know, British Catholic school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is, yeah. It's very much the, uh, at the time, you know, the Queen's country, as you say. Um, but uh, yeah, also interesting because the colonial history is very present, as is mm -hmm. the sort of somewhat fraught relationship with the United States over the years. So I think from a very early age, the impact of being from a place like that was really that I was very aware of geopolitics and very aware yeah, of yeah. how um, how global the world can be, but also how small and how important it is coming from a place where there are so many different cultures kind of mashed together, not by their own choosing in some scenarios, how important empathy is and how important it is to sort of foster real, like deep communication. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that has only continued to be, to be the case as I've grown old. studied um not in new york or not in connecticut no right? no i studied i studied at stanford with an at stanford, i'm yes. from stanford yeah. connecticut yes <laughs> i went to school at stanford in california and i um i was as an english major but i was the editor of the undergraduate paper at mm -hmm. stanford which is a a daily newspaper and um ended up getting a concentration in poetry so i sort of had like wow. a very um i guess i just was always interested in how to think Mm -hmm. So it isn't so much that I was sure about writing or I was sure about any particular career path. I just was very much interested in like getting a lot out of my education and connecting with people and learning how to really think. Because I, like a lot of people out there, I'm sure, you know, coming from an immigrant family and getting here so much of your um, drive is wanting to succeed. So you want to do well in school. You want to do all the things you're supposed to do and mm -hmm. check the boxes and get A's. And yeah. I, you know, frankly, I did do that. <laughs> but one of the reasons I, I chose to go to Stanford is because um, their admissions packet came as a, a sort of brown folder. And on the front, it said, like, this is for all the 
late nights and all the things you did to study and all the sports you played and all all the achievements. And then when you open it, it, it the the message was something to the effect of like, now you get to do whatever you want. Hmm. So, so it's not come here and continue to be a workaholic. You're only 17. It was actually come here and learn who you are and grow um, and delve deep into what might be possible for you. And I just, even at 17, I just knew that was the direction I needed to go. Like I needed to be in a place that fostered real learning rather than mm -hmm. forced me to just continue on this path of achievement, which coming from the Northeast in the US, honestly, there is such a focus on achievement and sort of prescriptive box checking um, that I think somewhere on a deep level, I just knew I needed to get out of that rat race. Mm -hmm. You know, I make the joke that in Jurassic Park, Timmy's falling down the tree and he never goes left or right. He just keeps running down. And you're like, no, no, get out of the stream. Of this, you know, get out of the way. And yeah. I think I just had an intuitive sense that I needed to find a, a, a little bit of um, a left or right of center way of, of living. Um, and that I wasn't going to be able to do that if I went to a place that just encouraged me to keep mm -hmm. doing the same thing. I, but I have a question about the writing in in terms of yeah. because I when I listen to you, basically you know you you're still doing all three and what I mean with that it's you know writing more in general maybe mm -hmm. books type yeah poetry and journalism mm -hmm. is that correct did I hear that correctly yeah. <laughs> yes I I am trying to do all the types all mm -hmm. the time I think you know uh, writers love having written you've probably heard that they don't love writing. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. I think I think that um, especially now with the baby, part of the mm -hmm. excitement of this this moment in the journey is figuring out how to write again. And my background, uh, schooling wise, being in creative writing, I haven't found or haven't in my career actually found the time and the kind of drive really to focus mm -hmm. on creative writing. So that's where I am now. Journalism has always sort of been in and out of my my life, and at times, you know, I count myself very lucky in having had staff positions in journalism and being able to enjoy a version of the business that was thriving and that was very much a part of the national and often international conversation, um, which is wonderful. And uh, and yeah, and then the, the poetry, I think it's funny. I think real poets are the people who sit at their desk and write poems every day. I'm the person who gets inspired and I'm like, I want to write a poem about mm. this. So I'm not sure that would be my, <laughs> my um, way to make a living, uh, mm -hmm. at least not credibly, but um, I do love it. And I think for me, studying that way just taught me how to use words. And I think that is a important skill and something that is harder and harder to come by these days. So being able to really think in um, abstract terms and figure out how to bring those abstract, com abstract concepts into concrete view is, um, is a powerful thing. And I think that's what studying poetry and other, um, and poets themselves uh, was able to do for me. Hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for that. When when I was listening to you, I had to think about my sister, who is a is a writer, um, you know, oh. pretty famous in the Netherlands. Um, she won a, a prize for for her whole, you know, the whole work of her. She's for fifty years now an author, and then she's also a painter and a filmmaker. And I don't know the order of it, but she always talks oh. about. She always yes. talks about partner, muse, and lover, you know, something like that. So I, when I listen to you, it's also like, you know, maybe that's how, <laughs> how you approach it, how, how the, you know, yeah. the poetry. And... 
<laughs> Some, don't know what your husband thinks about it, but uh, <laughs> oh, um, you know. <laughs> no, I love that. I'm going to steal it. But she's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, I, I uh, when I was looking at your website, and and we will make sure that mm -hmm. it, we mention it also in the podcast postcard notes. Um, you, you know, you write about the the, the piece, people. Um, politics and there's another one that you mentioned um it was slipping my mind but i i would like to talk about politics and, and you mentioned it also that it was yeah. always part of who, who you are how, can you explain a little bit more and and how is that still now in yeah. 2023 uh, part of your life <laughs> yes yeah, so you know i think part of this is an immigrant story. I'm a naturalized mm -hmm. citizen. Actually, my mother was naturalized um, before I turned 16. And so that was my shepherding into the, you know, American identity that I feel very deeply. And I think when you come in under those circumstances, um, you just have a different relationship to what this country is and what mm -hmm. it can be. And I feel it, like I said, very deeply. So I think from a young age, I mean, I remember being at the not the breakfast, the lunch, and the dinner table with my mm -hmm. mom and my siblings yeah. talking about what was happening in the news. Um, uh, the 2000 election was my first election that I was able to vote in. And I was just joking with my husband. I've never not voted in an election I was able to vote in, whatever that was. And he was like, you know, that's weird, right? Like, that's not a normal thing. <laughs> and of course, his family has been here for a few generations. Um, but I said, that's my that's my duty. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. If I am able, it is it is it is the right thing to do. And and uh, it's a privilege. So I think for me, being engaged in what was happening politically always felt important for that reason, just because that is that is what we as Americans commit to. It is the way that we engage with this grand American experiment that is about to be 250 years old. Mm -hmm. Um and and that is amazing. But I also think um, coming from a very sort of politically active um, region of the country, it was it felt like a way for me to connect with people and also to to help others have an effect on their lives because you have to be engaged in mm -hmm. these things in order to control and and you know hopefully affect uh, your day to day life. And I think what we're seeing right now, we are in such a polarized climate, but I think so much of it is because people have been in their own minds, so disengaged mm -hmm. from what is the reality of, of why things happen to them day to day that in a way they're just crying out for some kind of control. And sometimes that gets expressed in really negative um, or misdirected ways that it, it's not real to them anymore. And so they don't feel ownership of it. And I think that's a very dangerous um, and uh, unhappy place to be as a nation, mm -hmm. because I just don't think it's it's actually true to our DNA. Um, but it's it's a reality. And so I think for me, that's always been important. I think it feels even more important now. I think there's so much nuance in our political system and it's not being expressed at all. We're living at the fringes. Um, and that's that's just, I, I just think it's not, it's not only not the path we want to be on. I think it's also just not true to what's possible in this country. I think there's a lot that's possible here. And I think seeing young people get engaged in, in, um, in government and in governance is a wonderful thing. And I'm hoping that's what we'll see, um, you know, in the, in the years to come, but it can go either way. And I'm sure, I don't know if you saw, there was just, um, a story about the American report card that came out today saying that, you know, our civics scores for eighth graders are lower than they've ever been since mm -hmm. they started mapping this and I, I i am only laughing to keep from crying in some ways i'm not surprised by that and obviously there are a lot of reasons why it's happened but i actually think that that is a huge failure and something we need to look at because in a lot of ways like that's 
it's in that that moment in you know emerging adolescence when young people really decide like what is possible for them mm -hmm. in life and if they they feel like even their vote doesn't matter they don't even know what it means and and what it is they are um you know given uh, a, a voice in then we don't have a lot of hope and i have to believe there is more hope but it's it's a real call to action in my mind to get involved because for me it was as a young person a, a real way to to feel powerful and not powerful in a megalomaniacal way but powerful mm -hmm. in a sense that you are part of something amazing and and you know there's a lot of great reasons to be engaged with it Well, yeah, you know, it doesn't surprise me that that you know the the political engagement, you know, is is low. I think that's unfortunately, you know, maybe worldwide, especially you know, well, especially Western countries. I don't know how that is in in uh, countries in the south, actually. So, uh, but definitely in in Europe, in the Netherlands, mm -hmm. where I come from, I I uh, although we have been away for many years, but I yeah, I see a similar trend. So um, yeah um to go back to to politics does it also mean that you would go into politics <laughs> you know it's a funny question because i hear it a lot and actually i should say that my sister is a democracy reform attorney so she works mm. very deeply in that in that world and i kind of i joke that like i support her that is my contribution <laughs> yeah. to, to that i i I just don't know if I'm built for that life. I'm I'm built for the I think the the supporters behind the scenes, you know, um, life, and also for the what I think of as the life of translation because I think it's very important for people who are especially career politicians to be able to communicate their message to real everyday folks. And um, both in my journalism and now hopefully in my moderating, I try to really like help them to do that, um, whatever that means. Uh, and I think that that's that's where I see myself. Um, I, I was a debater in school and I loved that. That's a fun way of doing it. But I don't I'm not I'm not I can't really see myself out on the the, you know, stumping <laughs> and glad handing and campaigning. I mean, I think, you know, this is a whole side note, but I, I think where campaigning has gotten in our country is a huge part of the problem. And if I have to spend, you know, half my term raising funds to run again to be reelected, that doesn't seem like a great use of my time. But I think helping to reform that system and and driving it, like I said, through my sister at least, and through many other yeah. organizations. Um, that that's where my head is in that in that space. Okay, and and now I remember the other P that you mentioned on your website, yeah. and that's planet. You had people, planet, oh, and yes. politics. Um, and and maybe yeah, we not maybe we will talk about. The planet uh, yeah. later on you know when when i was you know trying to prepare me also about all those things that you've done which is pretty amazing um you're also very passionate about you know how i think uh, you know women have been portrayed and what they need to do um you know that that uh yeah you you mentioned i wrote this down for myself better than stronger you you uh you know, you said at a certain point, you know, and yeah. you're making your uh, point. I, I like that. Yeah. Um, but, but the question that I have, because I've also seen it, I, I've seen it actually around the world so often for, for women. If they are successful in more than one area, um, that's problematic seems to be for, for you know, people. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> you do <Yeah>. one thing. <laughs> yes. So do you do you also experience that that you know because you are you know doing different things and you are good at it? I mean that's that's you don't have to say that. That's what I see. That that's creating issues. Like you know why should you do this as well? You're over there. <laughs> It's funny when you mention about women doing multiple different uh, things and that being tough for people. I, I think we're sometimes putting that pressure on ourselves because there is this sense that you only have a finite amount of time, especially if you want to be a mother or you want to do sort of the, the family or the, the homemaking at any point in your life that you've got to fit it all in. And so anything that you put yourself uh, forward to do is then taking away potentially from something else. And of course, mm -hmm. this zero sum game approach to life is not, <laughs> it's not a way to be in my opinion. Um, but I think we're getting that message very early on. And mm. I'll share, I was um, at coffee the other day with a, a young woman who <laughs> you'll appreciate this story. So um, one of my uh, member of my family goes to the gym with a woman who he, you know, just knows from the gym they are in conversation. He mentions that, you know, um, he is, uh, you know, his friend is having a baby that she's in New York. This woman says, Oh my gosh, my daughter is moving to New York. Can I give her? <laughs> her number?" <laughs> so of course he's like, I'm so sorry. I don't know how this happened. Now you have to like hang out with this girl. And I said, no, no, no. I understand. Like she's a mom, right? Like she wants yeah. to give her daughter a, a shot. So I ended up going to coffee with this young woman and she was saying, you know, she's had some success in her young career, but is sort of trying to figure out what's next. And she said, you know, it's tough because I keep getting matched up with uh, senior women and I feel like they're so discouraging. And I don't know how to manage mm. that because I understand that the reason my managers are putting me in this men these mentoring relationships is because they, they think these women can um, bring their experience to bear in a way that will make more sense to me or resonate with me more than somebody else might, but she's like, I'm actually having the opposite experience. And it breaks my heart to hear that. But I also have been there. I've been exactly where she is mm -hmm. because I think so often we're in this, um, this, uh, world where it's like, there's only one seat at the table. So there's only for a woman. So it's, it's, it's you or me, or, you know, senior people who have been so beaten down, they're sort of bringing this very like sad attitude and wanting to for the right reasons, insulate you, but they're going about it in a way that's actually putting parameters and boundaries on you that aren't helpful. Um, so I just think that we've been in a a universe where there are reasons why women behave this way or why we put limits on ourselves and why the world puts limits on us. I think we just have to fight fight through it. And I, you mentioned this um, quote about from me <laughs> or this thing, uh, idea of we're always being told how strong we are. And I think it's so funny because it will be like, oh, you're so strong. I love how strong you are. And in my head, strong means that you're reacting, right? It's you're in mm -hmm. opposition to something that is trying to oppress you. I don't understand why that has to be the, the mindset. Why are we starting from a place of oppression rather than saying you are powerful, you are in, in you have dominion over <laughs> what is possible mm -hmm. in your life. And again, some of these things maybe sound semantic, but I think they, they really speak to one's soul, right? Words have power, they matter. And when we are starting from words that are less than, we are only going to be able to see so much, you know, for ourselves. So I think for me, I always tell, you know, young people, I still think of myself as reasonably young, but I'm not as young as I could be. So when young people come and ask me, 
um, you know, what, how they should be thinking about life or what they should be doing. I always say, just say yes to the things that feel right. Mm -hmm. Just if things come in front of you and they feel intuitively right, they're interesting. They feel like something you, that that is worth your time, just follow that. And I think I've always done that. So it's yielded all sorts of different (laughs) crazy things Mm -hmm. over the course of my career. But I will say when I look backwards, there are very clear through lines. You know, there are always things that I'm passionate about. They're always to some extent cause focused. They are always about building bridges between people and translating um, for folks who don't necessarily intuitively understand each other. And that, that sort of has driven everything that I've done, but you're right. It is, it can be perceived as all over the map. (laughs) No, no, that's, um, (laughs) that's not how I see it. It's more like, you know, if you're, yeah, you have, you have several talents and, and yeah, and it wow. seems to you, you you are not allowed to pursue them all. Yeah, you you do have to just sort of create seasons in in life for for all of them, mm-hmm. um, and and figure out how to make it work together. But I I, I guess it's not easy, and I think mm-hmm. being able to find support for it is not easy. And the other thing, and I'll just share this because I think it's relevant to where I am in life now. But I see it with a lot of other people. We really are still stuck in this model of you have to be able to like say what your title is and what your job is and that's it do you know what I mean so it's like I am a welder like that is a job and it's like that's true but I a lot of the welders I know also are photographers these days and they also are social media influencers and they're also doing all sorts of other things and I think we have to we have to grow up a little and recognize that we're in a different world where people's identities are much broader than just their job title and even their jobs are much broader than just one title so um, I'm excited to see how we navigate that territory, um, but I, I do th- still think sometimes that's part of being stuck is that when you're doing lots of things, you can't you can't fit it into a traditional resume, and that's scary. Mm-hmm. It's scary to be in a space where you're just breaking new ground all the time. Yeah. yeah. No, and, and it's interesting that you say that because I had a, a couple of guests who were when I asked them, you know, can you tell a bit about what you do? And then they, they felt strange saying it because they were also like you, you know, yeah. involved with several things. So, and and then they were explaining to me, um, yeah, and a lot of people then don't understand. Yeah, but what do you do? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you earn your money? So, so it's, yeah, well, yeah. through all those things. Yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, it's interesting. Hey, let us go to the last P in that that's planet. Um, So yeah, tell me how, how, why is that um, important for you? Yeah, I just, I'm amazed that it's not important for everyone. And again, Mm. I think coming from um, an equatorial country, coming from a background where my family for, you know, several generations back on my mom's side, were all rice farmers, very much at the mercy of, the weather at the mercy of governments at the mercy of all sorts of things. And Mm -hmm. I I think they love that it's very deep in their bones as, um, as their sort of legacy. But I also, I think it's very hard. And I think starting from that place and then recognizing both that the world is full of bounty, the earth itself is full of bounty, but that it also, we need to be stewards of it. That was something I recognized from childhood, especially coming from a country of like Guyana, which is two thirds rainforest. And we were very lucky in a lot of ways that much of that was preserved in mm-hmm. Amazon rainforest. Um, and it wasn't necessarily preserved for good reasons. It was just that there wasn't a lot of investment or economic um, sort of influx at the time. And 
so all of this wonderful biodiversity was preserved. Um, and now we're seeing that shift for a lot of different reasons. But I, I think it just made me very conscious early on of how much like wealth there was um, in that. And now as I get older, um, I just, I'm, I am aghast by how little progress we seem to be willing to make on some of these things. And a lot of it is privilege. I think you've had previous guests say like we in the quote unquote, you know, first world, there's a lot of privilege, privilege we're not willing to give up. So we're willing to put money towards things. And sometimes we're not even willing to do that. But when it comes to, you know, the things we can do, um, it, it, it is, it's a, it's a much uh, bigger climb. And so I think, I think for me, it's just that we really do only have one planet and, and we've heard, and I'm sure you've heard this too, like the way we treat the least of us is the best marker of who we actually are. And we talk about children, we talk about the, you know, the elderly, we talk about veterans. I think for me, the actual planet is in that as well, because, you know, we don't have, animals don't have control over what we do to their habitats. The earth doesn't have control over how we use and abuse it. And I think the fact that we just continue to use and abuse it is is not a, a credit to us in any way, shape or form. Um, I understand too that humans are sort of built in this immediate gratification way. <laughs> so it is hard to say, oh, I have to give up my X now so that my children can have Y or Z. But I, I do think it's it can't just be about our children. It has to be about everybody else's children. And it has to be about, you know, conservation. It has to be just um, coming from a broader mindset. And I will say that I think some of that for me comes from just being brought up um, in in a very in a community, especially in a, a church community too, that was just very thoughtful about this sort mm -hmm. of thing. So I think uh, for me, my family is Presbyterian, but very open. So not dogmatic at all. And, you know, we joke with my mom that she never actually married another Christian. <laughs> she just, but she, you know, so we had all the religious books up to and including like Norse myths and Egyptian myths and Greek myths as children. And I think we just were taught to understand that as humans trying to understand the world. And so for us, it should also be a way to understand the world. Um, but I, I, I think in our uh, church community in Stanford, um, we were just always talking about these kinds of things, about stewardship, about mm -hmm. what it meant to care, not about just ourselves and about each other, but about the, the world, which encompasses the earth, obviously. Um, and I think that's just deeply important. But I also think climate is one of those things where unless we get it right, everybody lives or dies on mm -hmm. the strength of what we are able to do on this front, right? It is not, it, it, there is no geography that won't be affected, no class, no race, no religion. Um, and, and I think it's one of those things that we just, we've got to get hip <laughs> to, mm -hmm. to what the realities are. And you see it, you see it when you look around the weather that we've had, and you've seen the maps as well as I have, and most people have, these extreme events, the, the, the climate changes, the, what we're seeing in the ocean, my husband's a surfer and just year to year, the shifts in currents and animals that pop up and everything else. Um, it's just, it's dramatic. And I, I think to be able in my lifetime to see the actual earth be so deeply affected by the actions of humans in unquestionable ways is deeply frightening. And I think we don't want it to get worse. So it's one of those things that mm -hmm. I just think it's crazy not to talk about it. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And, 
And, you know, one of the ways that, uh, you know, you have been doing that is you're very active around, you know, climate action, which is mm -hmm. one of the SDGs. You have been moderating many uh, events around <laughs> the SDGs, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I saw you being the moderator around, around the SDG in action. Uh, mm -hmm. It was not long. Yeah, it was... You were pregnant in September. Because, I was pregnant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, you were almost about to. <laughs> I was thirty-five deliver. weeks pregnant. <laughs> like, save you did the a world, great job. Please. I <laughs> thank you. And you can still, it's still available on, on uh, there, so people can can watch you. Um, but I, you know, so I'm also passionate about, you know, telling the world that we have these SDGs that we need to mm -hmm. take better care of the world and and humanity. Um, so. The, the question that I have then for, for my guest is, you know, one is, do you know about the SDGs? Well, you know, <laughs> what, what, what do you like the listeners to know about the SDGs? I think I should say first, I remember doing an event at the UN headquarters here in New York in 2015 when they were launching the SDGs and being very excited about the model um, because it felt to me very accessible. These are goals that everybody can understand. The iconography is beautiful. The kind of spirit of, of these goals, I think, is very um, much for every single person on earth. And I, I love that. Um, in the time since, I think, obviously, for a lot of reasons, including the pandemic, the progress hasn't been what any of us would have liked to see. But I think I am also hoping that mm -hmm. part of the accelerated action that we're all going to engage in, you know, coming up to 2030 and beyond, is getting more people engaged in the SDGs because I do think that they they are still for a lot of people not top of mind. Mm -hmm. I love seeing the companies that use the you know the specific goals. I love seeing um, different people wearing their pins, which you know isn't uh, everybody, but it'll pop up every once in a while. I think, oh my god, that guy has an SDG wheel on. That's amazing, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and those things are wonderful. But I, I honestly think this should be on the tip of everybody's tongue. It should be a framework that we are all using to talk about how we're living our lives and. Um, I think that's what I want people to know. I want them to know that they can go on any UN related website right now and get learn a ton about the SDGs. They can Google sustainable development goals or global goals and find out a ton and and actually find ways to affect change on on those 17 goals. And I think we all should be doing that. Hopefully we're doing it anyway in our lives. But mm. I think having that framework of the SDGs is so motivating because you can actually map your own actions. You can think about what kind of change you want to make in the world. Um, and you can encourage other people to do it too, right? It is, it really is a tool. Um, and I just, I want, I want more people to know about it. That's as straightforward mm -hmm. as I can be. Okay. <laughs> and you know, what, what for me is strange to see is that um, actually this is one of the few countries where people don't know about it actually. Yeah. So yeah. How, how come? I mean, it's also <laughs> the only country that, did not do a voluntary report on where they are with the progress, right? Why is that, you think? Oh, you know, I think there's a lot of privilege built into that as well. I think this goes back to those sad civic scores I was talking about, where I think people are disengaged. I also think that here we are living truly in the lap of luxury, even at the, the lowest levels, even at, at levels that are truly... Um, what we would consider poor or in poverty in our country, you still have so much access to infrastructure that just does not exist anywhere else in the world. You still have school, you still have um, Wi-Fi, you still have all sorts of things that um, just 
allow you to live in a little bit of a bubble. And unfortunately, I also think we have been living in a very individual time in the United States. I hope to see that change. I think there is change happening on that front. But this whole, you know, sense of not just our nation being exceptional, but every single person in it being exceptional and not having to engage at all in the realities of what are what is happening around the world. Um, I think it's it's really let us down a, a, a tough path. But I think that's why you don't see people knowing about it because we're not we're not motivated to get involved because we think we are insulated from anything bad that could actually happen. And I, I know that's not true. You know that's not true. And I think deep down, most people should know that it's not true. But anytime we're sort of confronted with these realities and, and have to kind of sit down and really face them, I think we shy away from it because we're sort of like, well, it doesn't really mean us. Like, if I leave the water running, what's really going to happen? Do you know what I mean? Or, and the reality is we're seeing, we're seeing it happen right now. You know, we're seeing the Colorado river is drying up and you're going to see water rationing happening in the Southwest. I don't think most people are registering the reality of that yet. And, you know, my grandpa used to say, those who don't want to hear have to feel. And I think that's what's happening right now that we are in a country full of people who don't want to hear. And I am so sad that they're so many people going to who are going to feel the effects of that um, in very negative ways. And of course, it is going to be the least of us. It's going to be the people who can ill afford to bear the brunt of those consequences. But hopefully that motivates us. I think that is that is a huge part of why you see so many Americans disengage from it because they these things, because they are they're just they don't think it affects their everyday lives. And that could not be less true. Mm-hmm. Um, but honestly, that's why I'm on the mission I'm on. It's why you're on the mission you are. It's the reason why I would be 35 weeks pregnant talking about climate change. <laughs> you know? like, um, I, and I, I mean, honestly, the, I will tell you, like the <sighs> wonderful people who are producing the SDG Action Zone, which was the event I was doing, they were all they're both the, the two who were uh, leading the charge, our director and um, the head of the SDG strategy hub are both dads. And the entire time they were just like looking at me like, is everything okay? Here's a grape. Here's an apricot. Like, what do you need? <laughs> Please don't have a baby on our set <laughs> for everyone's sake. But I think it was that important to all of us, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, these are our, our fellow citizens who aren't recognizing just what a, what a, important moment we're in. And I think that has to shift. But I will say I have a lot of hope. I feel like you're seeing a lot of politicians, you know, really on both sides of the aisle get engaged in this. You're seeing young people be more engaged than literally they have ever been. And and I think that bodes that bodes well. But we we have a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. A lot, a lot of work. Yeah. Now, a lot of work to do. I mean, you know, you mentioned one of the reasons that we are not making the progress that we should make you know, is, is probably, not probably, is, is for sure because of COVID. But there yeah. is also a growing group of people saying that, you know, one of the reasons is that we are not paying sufficient, or we did not pay sufficient attention to the knowledge, skills and abilities that you need as an individual and as a community mm-hmm. or as okay. institutions. So as a result, you know, they started to discuss and they came up with the inner development goals. Mm -hmm. So five goals being relating, thinking, collaborating and acting, action, right? Um, Yeah. what, What are your thoughts about the inner development goals? So I had not actually heard anything about the inner development goals until you brought it up. Um, as we were talking about doing this um, together. And mm-hmm. I love them. I <laughs> read up on mm-hmm. them once. And I, I actually think it is always good to put language around things that 
we all feel intuitively. And that's how I felt reading them. I said, I, you know, this, this makes absolute sense to me. It resonates completely because it mm-hmm. is exactly what we, it's where all the conversations, conversations seem to return um, when we're talking about the, the goals, because, you know, empathy is a great example where it's like, we're talking about empathy all the time and it sort of becomes a buzzword. And yet that's what we're lacking a lot of the time when mm-hmm. we're seeing folks just not take on what's happening to, again, their fellow, fellow human beings. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that we, we have created that framework. Again, I think the, the work is always in the action, right? It's how do we, how do we teach people to build those things? And being a newish mom, I will tell you in our household, we talk about it a lot because I, I learned those things at home, but I also learned them going to, you know, my Sunday school. I learned Mm -hmm. them in that context. And I, learn them from really great elementary school teachers. But as we move farther and farther away from sort of teaching compassion to young people in a like a, a, an active way, just as you know, one example, I, I'm not sure how we how we enact this. There are some things that I think are so in, internal, like inherent to being human. And we haven't figured out how to actually teach young children about them because I think we just expect them to be there. And now we're seeing, oh, they're not there for a lot of people. So how do we actually, how do we instill that um, in our in our young people? And I, I, I'm excited to see the framework. I'm really looking forward to the, the continuing conversation of how to actually build these, um, these skill sets, not just in children, but even in adults, because I think there are plenty of adults that need that work right now. Yeah. Um, no, and, 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 you know, a lot of uh, work is being done. And I think the, the next summit is in October. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, together with Seattle University, the Center of Ecumenical and, and Interreligious Engagement, we have been experimenting, um, you know, in, in workshops and introducing the idea of the, the inner development goals. And it definitely resonates, you know, people, um, yeah, it helps them to, to link it to all those enormous challenges, which seems, you know, yeah, they're so big, you know, we can't do it. Mm-hmm. And of course, mm-hmm. as an individual, you will not be able to change it. But as an individual, you can, you know, because of your, yeah, you're a part of the whole as well. So, yeah. so uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it, very often people say, oh, um, you know, you should not put all that emphasis on on the individuals. It's it's the you know it's the industries. It's the yes, yeah. but there are there are people within that, and they have mm-hmm. opinions. So so yeah. you know, I I believe that consumers can ultimately change what what uh, the shops sell. You know, yeah. so people's and, run people run companies, right? It's their companies are not actually people. Whatever we, however we've said it in the past, <laughs> they are run by people. And, yeah. And again, we are behind everything that's happening in the world right now, both good and bad. And so, yes, you're absolutely right that I think giving people that language and pushing them in that way is going to be deeply important. I'm curious how we get to the people who don't want to hear it, you mm-hmm. know, because that's really the 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 trouble that I think we're running into is where, you know, in a lot of ways, we're sort of talking to ourselves. And, and I love that. I love that we're encouraging each other and pushing each other and motivating each other. But there's a whole group of folks who just don't want to engage and don't want to be pushed mm-hmm. in that way. And I'm, I'm curious to see how we get them engaged. Um, or do we just need to bypass that and, and move on to the next generation to sort of inculcate it early yeah. on?
Well, you know, you, you, one of the reasons that I started this podcast, because I'm trying to connect people, I believe yeah. that, you know, you, nobody can be, this is Ken Wilber, a philosopher, he's saying that, you know, nobody can be wrong 100% of the time. Yeah. So, so if that's the case, then there is, there is a moment where you can discuss, start the discussion, start a dialogue. And it's the Absolutely. beginning of, of many things, right? Hey, um, you were alluding to your upbringing, uh, that, that part of your upbringing is also was the going to church Sunday school. Mm-hmm. So f- very often, well, I mean, first first of all, this particular podcast is a spin-off of a 100-mile walk that I started mm-hmm. in 2012. Which is and, wonderful. And uh, yeah, it's got a little bit <laughs> out of hand. But, uh, you know, when I'm In the best walking, possible way. Yeah, yes and no. You know, if you get... <laughs> You get older, you get injuries. It's not that nice anymore. But um, no, but but so sometimes I'm accompanied by by other people, and we talk about uh, religion, spirituality. That has probably to do with the walking. Um, and then a, a topic that always comes up is the younger generation. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I have a question because of that, and that is, what do you see happening among youth? not only millennials also centennials yeah <laughs> uh, in your community you know with yeah. regard to religion and spirituality yeah so i think there's a lot of spirituality there's a lot of engagement with spirituality as it relates to wellness with spirituality as it relates to kind of the inner self and i think that's great um i do think there is not a lot of engagement with the community of faith Never mind faith itself. Um, there's a lot of distrust. There's a lot of um, kind of just not even understanding what the value or power is of a faith community. And I think there's also a sense that in a lot of ways, and I'll just say this, frankly, some of the hardest things that have happened in the United States in particular over the last several decades have been driven by, to some extent, religious fanaticism. And I think that's that's tough. It's tough for young people to engage in something that they think is actually pretty pernicious. And of course, for me, I find myself in this funny spot all the time where I'm saying, oh, but it isn't all that. <laughs> you know, I, I grew up with, you know, uh, in a, a church community that really stressed critical thinking um, and where there wasn't this emphasis on believing the scripture. It was actually about like, what is what are the lessons meant to be? You know, what are the... What, what should the takeaways be for how you live your life? And in that way, for me, um, that learning was no different from the learning I did in my English classes at school, which was also about literature and about learning and about understanding each other. Um, but I don't think that's how most young people experience religion these days. A lot of them experience it as something that was forced upon them or as something that they're seeing in the news that's driving a lot of negative um, behavior. And I think they're not sure about how to engage with it if they should engage with it at all. And really the thing they're not hearing or feeling is why they should engage with it. They see no value really, because I think um, it just doesn't feel good to them. It doesn't feel like it is good with a capital G. Um, and I, that's really sad. Honestly, I, I, it makes me really sad. And I think it's one of the reasons why I actually talk about being from a faith community, because I don't necessarily um, see myself as religious. I'm not a religious person, but I do see myself as part of a Presbyterian community that was very influential in my formation as a human being. And I think that that is valuable. And I think there's value to that 
um, particularly for children who aren't necessarily seeing us be our best selves every day if they're watching the news or even if they're out on the street. You know, I just I, I think I think that there's there's a lot of value in that. So for young people, I think there really is a call to action there as well of trying to give them versions of spiritual and religious life that um, feel positive, that feel accessible, that feel meaningful, um, and also that don't feel dogmatic or constraining or judgmental. Because so much of how I think, especially American young people experience religion is judgment and constraints. And I think we all have to, we are human. There are going to be judgments and there are going to be constraints, but we don't want to be judgmental or oppressive. And I think that's sometimes what I, I think a lot of um, young people are feeling when they're, they're talking about religion um, and about spirituality. And it's funny because there's also that difference between I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. You hear that a lot these days. And yeah. I joke sometimes what they mean is like, I go to yoga and I hear like, you know, and my teacher does says a lot of spiritual stuff. And so therefore, um, and that's great. I too go to yoga and listen to my teacher say a lot of spiritual stuff. But um, I think there's more to it than that. And I think there's more growing. I'm a very encouraged by how many people, you know, want to meditate now, how many people are maybe reading um, different uh, sources now and, and trying to find their entry point um, into some of these philosophies. And that's wonderful. But um, I think there's there's more depth there that we're missing out on because um, there's kind of a you know religion has kind of a bad rap right now, <laughs> mm-hmm. maybe deservedly so. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would like to go back to to my hundred mile because you know yeah. Um, so I, I started it to, to raise awareness and, and funds to end hunger, poverty, and injustice. Um, if you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week or in five days, um, yeah, for what cause would you walk? So I thought about this question a lot because you were kind enough to share it with me ahead of time. And I think ending hunger, ending poverty, ending injustice, all of that, are those are good reasons to walk 100 miles. I think every single one of the sustainable development goals are great reasons to walk 100 miles. And I'd like to think that given the opportunity, if it were something that could have an impact, I would do that work. But I think it's the impact piece that I, I and many other people are missing. I want to know that the thing that I'm doing will reach people. And I guess what I'm learning as I get older is sometimes just like you said earlier when the problem feels so big walking that 100 miles to people their immediate response is well what does that actually do and obviously in your case you're raising both awareness and funds which is incredible Um, but I think as I reflected on the question I got to a place where I was like you know what I would walk 100 miles for there are more specific things than these big goals it might it might be walking 100 miles you know to raise money for the Brooklyn Public Library or walking 100 miles to um, raise awareness around mifeprestone um, and, and keeping it available um, to women who who need necessary reproductive care. And the reason for that is because those things feel so specific that they are maybe actionable. And I think that is what I am often missing in the movements that we are both, you know, so grateful to be parts of. Um, we are not always able to speak in terms that regular people find real and find changeable. And so when I have a day of events related to climate, people are like, good luck. 
you know, they're happy for me. <laughs> they're like, please go do that work. Yeah. But they're, they're not believing that I'm coming out of those six hours with mm-hmm. a solution to <laughs> any major climate problem. Um, and so when it comes to walking, I, I would, I would walk for things that at the end of those hundred miles, maybe there would be a real takeaway that I could say to people, you know what, that hundred miles funded this many days of the library being open because we are Mm -hmm. now in a situation where, you know, library funding could potentially be cut in New York city, which is breaking my heart, but, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, where, where there would be outcomes that, that would be measurable. And it's not because I don't think the bigger the bigger causes are as important. They're deeply important. They're more important. But I, I also think getting people to change the way they think mm-hmm. about this stuff is what matters and getting them to get engaged. So yeah, I think it would be, it would be these sort of, I don't want to say smaller, but these like more specific um, causes. And there are a million of them. I think you're probably the same as I am where I can get passionate about a lot of things because I see, I see so many needs, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I walk down the street outside my house and I think on every block, I see something that I'm like, I want to fix that. Or I want to help this person or there's got to be something we can do about, you know, X or Y or Z. Um, so there's a lot of causes and I'm so grateful for, you know, the work that, that you've done and so many other people have done on all the goals, but I think, I think narrowing it down would mm-hmm. be my instinct. And okay. I probably couldn't have a different answer for you every day about what those narrow causes would be because there mm-hmm. are a million of them, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I will, I might hold you to it next, next year, <laughs> you know, say, okay, yeah. I work for this, you work for that. Yeah. Um, Hey, so so I I alluded before that you know I'm I'm trying to connect people or or see yeah. different perspectives, right? Um, so yeah, so one of the questions is about this. I have a question for you from the previous guest. Yeah, so so my question is actually sort of related to this question. Is is I I would uh, I want to know like what is and it's more action oriented. I don't know. I don't know if it doesn't, if this doesn't actually work, let me know. Um, but I, what I'd like to know is what's one issue where you feel like fully decided um, and you, and you're, you don't really listen to other perspectives and what can you do to sort of open, open your mind or open a conversation or open a relationship uh, that would allow you to sort of reinterrogate a particular view. So uh, I think that's an incredible question. Um, And I think my answer would probably be something we've talked about a lot already, which is Mm -hmm. climate. Um, I have pretty much decided what I think on the climate front. And I am not, it's not that I'm not open. It's just that I have not heard any arguments that are persuasive. And I will say I do try to be open. Part of the reason I do the work I do in front of audiences is because I want to put myself in a position to hear lots of people and to help other people hear mm-hmm. lots of different people um, and different perspectives within you know reason and, and with respect. But I, I think climate is one of those places where every time I've read perspectives from people who are um, on the other side of the issue than I am, the science feels not super substantive. The arguments are very us focused, very much mm-hmm. about what we can't give up rather than about what we must do and what is imperative. And so if, if it were about being more open, I think I would be more open if there were actual, 
research and, and science that showed me that climate change is not caused by humans. Climate change is not going to have the, the deleterious effects that we believe it's going to have any of that, but I have not seen that science. And so I, I am, I am very much decided, um, you know, for now on that, if something happens tomorrow that changes our approach, mm -hmm. then great. I, I, I want to see it, but I do think there are some things where the facts are just what the facts are. And uh, a lot of the resistance to it isn't about facts. It's about us not wanting to give up a position of power. Your question for the next guest. For that, I would love to hark back to what we were talking about earlier, which is spirituality. I would ask the next guest what they would say to anybody, but particularly to a young person who is wondering why they should be open to, to religion. What can taking a religious view or being active in a religious community add to their life that might currently be missing or that can't be found elsewhere? I know I like that question. Um, <laughs> hey, um, uh, Steve Hartman of CBS uh, in mm -hmm. the US examines at the moment. Um, I don't actually know if he's still doing that, but he, I know he started. <laughs> he was. To yeah. To examine how one simple act of kindness creates a ripple effect. And um, so I have two questions around this. One is, you know, what is your opinion about that? Um, yeah. About the potential of a simple act of kindness. And second, if I would ask you, um, you know, right now, what you would do this week um, around this, you know, one simple act of kindness this week, what would you do? So I'll, I'll take your first question first. I think Steve is completely right. <laughs> we need to be living in a mindset of kindness all the time. And I don't mm -hmm. think that's controversial, honestly. Um, and it shouldn't be controversial. I, and I'm probably one of those people who can be annoyingly helpful, if that makes sense. I've definitely had the boyfriend that's like, oh God, if we have to stop to help one more couple take a photo of themselves, and we're never gonna get where we're going. So, and I think honestly, that comes from my mom and my grandma and the people in my life um, who brought me up, who were always sort of just involved with people. If they saw somebody who needed something, they, you know, they tried to be of, of use and of help. Um, and I, I try to live my life that way as well. And I think, it's not just about how that act of kindness helps the individual who you're actually helping. It's about the example that you're setting and the tone that you're setting. And just as my mom obviously set an example for me and for my brothers and sister, I think whenever we do anything, especially now that we're living in these dense urban centers where people could just walk past each other without a second glance, um, I think we're setting an example for each other. And you see it, you see it on the subway here if when you know the somebody comes on and performs and you pull out a quarter, suddenly everybody's pulled out their quarters, you know, and that's a small and silly example, but I do think we have to continue to model for each other the behavior that we want to see in the world. Um, so there's that. And I think if you were asking me about what my act of kindness would be, um, I'm doing one right now in that I'm editing a cover letter for somebody I don't really know at all, but who <laughs> mentioned that they needed help. And <laughs> so I said, oh, that's that's a thing I can do. Um, uh, so there's that. And, you know, again, I, I try to do it every day. I do 
we were just at the botanical gardens and there was a wonderful mom taking pictures of all her kids and none of the kids were old enough to take a picture with her in it. So I pulled over my kid and said, I'll take a photo of you. Um, and then she very sweetly was like, oh, I should take one of you guys. So now I have a picture I wouldn't have had otherwise with my, with my daughter in, in the cherry blossoms at the botanical garden here in Brooklyn. So those are silly and small examples, but I think we should just be living in that sense of kindness all the time and kindness is an abundant thing it doesn't cost us anything to just be be nice be decent smile at people I still say hello at everybody as I walk down the street and I think some people must think I'm a strange person but I think most people actually love it <laughs> hey music is very important to me so I always have yeah. a question about music um, if I ask you to come up with a uh, piece of music or a song that best embodies who you are for a big part, um, yeah, which piece of music or song would that be and why? Oh, right. So I thought about this question to death because I love <laughs> music too. I actually played um, viola for, you know, most of my young life. And yeah. um, recently my husband got a bass because I've been saying how much I like bass. And he was like, okay, you got to play the bass. So first raising this baby, but also I'm going to be playing the bass soon, hopefully. <laughs> but oh. I, I love music and I wanted to have like a cool kid answer. I was like, what's a Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd song that would be the answer to this question. But the real answer and the place I kept coming back to um, was singing in the rain. Hmm. And I, actually play something from the musical probably every day for my daughter um and I'm <laughs> my you know people that I love are not necessarily musicals people but um I grew up literally with my grandpa taking me to the Ferguson library in Stanford our local library probably every week to rent the singing in the rain VHS and I would be sitting on the couch at six years old or whatever just watching it once a week and just thinking I love everything about this and I don't thinking back on it now, I'm like, what resonates with me about that song is it is that there, the life is hard. The world is mm. difficult. And every day there's going to be something that makes you want to throw up your hands and just be like, I cannot deal with this. I can't take another moment of it. And in the face of both tiny problems and big problems and seemingly intractable, intractable problems, I deeply believe that we just have to take an attitude of optimism. And I think that's what I feel in my heart every time I hear that song and think of Gene Kelly splashing through <laughs> puddles very elegantly. Um, because I, I, I do think, mm. what are the alternatives, you know, to be sad and to be hopeless? That's just not an option. And, and mm. I think for me, the, the optimism and the joy of living is important and it's something that also is contagious and it gives us hope. I don't think we're gonna change the world incrementally one tiny step at a time. I think it's going to be all of us deciding that we wanna take some big leaps forward. And I think we can only do that if we are actually willing to be singing in the rain. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah. really to be happy, to choose to be happy. Cool. I, I will add that uh, song to the Spotify playlist that we started. Um, I love if you that. Go to Spotify, Hashtag walk, talk, listen, and you see all, well, you will find and can listen to all the songs that were picked by my guests. So yours. Will what be was yours? Well, no, I, I'm, I'm the host. I don't pick songs. <laughs> well, that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> <laughs> That's what everybody says when they are interviewed by me. <laughs> you of all people should know this when, when you're always interviewing. So, uh, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Oh, and how is it, by the way, to be on the other side? 
Oh, you know, it's funny because I keep thinking, is he getting what he's wanting? Is he getting what he wants? <laughs> and then I'm like, I've been blathering for minutes. Who knows if this is useful or not? So um, I have to turn off the uh, the internal producer in my brain that's trying to help you do what you're clearly great at and don't need my help to do at all. <laughs> so. I, I don't know about that. I, I enjoy it. So, so uh, and, and, and so far I've gotten some good uh, feedback. So that's great. And that's always yeah. because of the guests. So uh, I'm, I'm so, yeah, honored by you. Everybody says always, yes, this is absolutely great. So uh, I love it. Well, um, you earned it. <laughs> I don't know, but... Uh, <laughs> And I, I really, you know, in, invite uh, the listeners to check out, you know, previous work that you've done in your articles. And when you go to your website, there is a lot what you have done over there. So uh, that's nadirahira.com. It's nadirahira.com. Yeah. Com. Okay. So they yeah. should check that out. And it's also in the in the notes of this podcast. Hey, um, any last message, question or suggestion uh, for the ah. listeners? We've covered so much ground. Um, I think it's just about doing, man, right? We just got to get out there and do. I think if you don't know about the SDGs, please get on the Google and learn. <laughs> and then pick pick one or two or three. I don't think you have to get precious about it. I just think pick some goals and 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 hit them. We've got all of 2023 in front of us and some long runway to 2030, which is sort of the next big milestone that many of us have in mind. And I think that a lot can happen in that time. So. I just hope, and I commit to this myself, I just hope that we can all take that mission deeply to heart and, and find ways to infuse our world, not just with action, but with joy mm-hmm. and with movement um, and with reflection, because I don't think we're doing a lot of that or enough of it a lot of the time either. And I think that's how we stay motivated is by doing the internal work too, um, to make the external better anything that I did not ask you that I should have asked you? Oh, (laughs) you know, not that you should have asked me, but I think I am amazed this experience of being a mom now, which Mm. I was not one of those people before who um, thought that was the only way to exist is being a parent. I have an incredible mom and she's so good at the job that I thought, oh, if I can't do it that well, I don't know if I should do it at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I've been very lucky that I, I get to do a lot of mothering, you know, to the, a lot of the kids in my life, which is very wonderful. But now having my own, I think a lot of people said to me, you know, it's going to be so hard. You won't want to do anything, but spend time with her. And you're, you're not going to be, you know, have the energy for other things and your whole perspective is going to change. Um, and it actually made me think of any number of events I had done at the UN where I would ask panels, you know, what's the goal that matters the most to you? And it never failed in any of those events that at least one, if not multiple men on the stage would say, oh, well, I have a daughter. So gender is my goal that matters mm-hmm. to me. And I always thought like, do you need a daughter to care about gender equality? <laughs> you just mm-hmm. Actually, you just need to be a person. And so it, it, people ask me about, you know, motherhood always reminded me of that, where I was like, am I going to be different because I have this child and will that make me less engaged in some ways in the work that we've both been engaged in um, for some time and so if you were to ask me that question how motherhood has changed my perspective on this work it would actually be that I feel it 
all the more, but not for the obvious reason, not because I think, oh God, I need to get, build a better world for her. It's actually because I do, I do believe that as she grows up, I want to set an example for her. I want her to be building the better world. I want her to be engaged in that work as much, if not more than we are. But I, I want her to also say, like, I learned that from my mom. Truthfully, mm. the same way I say I learned it from my mom. Oh my God, I've been a cry. <laughs> I don't even know how that happened. <laughs> but I do, I do want to be, I want to be a credit to her. And I think that makes me very excited mm. for what's coming in this next time because I've been doing work that I feel is important or meaningful all of this time. But I think there's new meaning infused in it by wanting it to be valuable on behalf of my child and wanting her to grow up and say, like, I want to do that and, and, and so much more because. Um, I've had a great example set for me at home and in my community and, you know, and to, to really be driven by that. I mean, it's the reason I did the action zone at 35 weeks pregnant. Cause I asked myself, why would I be doing this is crazy. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, no, I, when she is, you know, old enough to watch this, I want her to know, like, this is what I expect of myself. And so hopefully you will expect that and even more of yourself because you're capable of it. We're all capable of it. We're capable of fixing everything that's wrong and, and building something beautiful. And why shouldn't we? Does no, that answer your question? I don't even yes, know. No, it, it does. <laughs> it, it's interesting. Now, and thanks for that to, to, to lift that up. I, it, it actually, the question was in my head. Yeah. Um, because, you know, you and I, we had, you know, a message is going back and forth about your daughter. Yeah. Right. So that's why <laughs> I was, would like to, to know, but then I thought, you know, women are very often asked that question. Yeah. And whenever a dad is a, a new dad, that question is not being asked. Yeah. So so that's why I didn't. You know, so, <laughs> I appreciate so, that. But I think so, dads should be asked. Yeah, right? no, because you're right. They, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and and I think that's an important lesson too on the gender front. It's mm. not taking away things. It should be adding things. It should be, mm -hmm. you know, here in the US, we have such a mismatch with maternity and paternity leave. And it's so crazy mm. to me because it's like, a dad is as important as a mom, right? And in some ways, it's more important for him to be home because there's no way for me not to feel the physical experience of being a mother. It is very easy as a father to disengage from that. So you, it's even more important that you, you be given the space to connect to what it means to be a dad because so much of it is going to happen not in a physical way, um, but in, a, in an emotional way and in a psychological way. Um, but yeah, it's funny that you, that is the reason you didn't ask the question. And I appreciate it because obviously that's coming from a, a good place, but I think that's why I'm so much more willing to engage with that question of motherhood than maybe I would be in a different context, because I think it is important for us to talk about it, not as something that takes away or that suddenly makes you some kind of, you know, iconic version of a mother that is now different from who you were as a professional or as a person. Um, but actually to say, you know, as a mom, I feel more integrated into my work, but also more critical of it and critical in a good way, you know, more willing to say, what is it that I'm actually doing? And, and when I have to answer to her, because I do think as a parent, in some ways you are answerable to your children, you should be. Um, when I'm answerable to her, will I have good answers? Mm -hmm. Will I have good reasons for the things that I've done? And will they feel worthwhile to her and to me and honestly to the world? Because that is, I think, what we should all be striving for. It doesn't mean every day needs to be a struggle, but I do think that the, that we are all in a kind of contract with each other and we should be wanting to make the world better for each other. And hopefully that's what we're doing. That's certainly what you're doing. Keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> you know. um, yeah, I, 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 
yeah, as, as I mentioned to you earlier, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm so privileged that I've had such wonderful people, I guess, and, and uh, yeah, I, I've learned so much from, from them, so I hope also the people who have been listening to this as well. And all the, those, you know, that goes also back to small steps, ultimately, you know, small, I, I think Ellie, Ellie Price uh, in the podcast, two, two podcasts ago, she was talking about her teacher, you know, who said, you know, your visit to your experience in, an, in a, another country, it will not mm -hmm. change your life, you know, completely. But even if it's one degree, ultimately on the long run, you end up somewhere else because yeah you know so i i yeah so so um yeah we need we need a lot of big changes absolutely but yeah it doesn't mean that we cannot use some of the smaller steps as well so yeah uh, it's all all in concert yeah no i i believe that um hey thank you so much it was, it was great welcome. uh talking thank you with you and yeah all the best with everything you do thank you um, tons and ditto you. I really appreciate you having me. And I hope your injuries resolve quickly <laughs> because you are doing you're doing wonderful things with your walking. <laughs> well, I'm not planning to walk anytime. Not a hundred miles anytime soon. But yeah. Um I yeah, I hope actually the next generation will take it over. That's my uh, that's my next assignment in the next nine months or so that I will find somebody or a group of young people who are willing to do it. So, yeah, call to action there crossed. too. Fingers crossed. Yep. Hey, th thanks a lot. Thank you. for listening to walk talk listen please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on facebook or instagram